Oh, it was pretty interesting to sit down with Zuckerberg. I mean, the, the challenging thing with him is that he, uh, you know, you have a limited amount of time and you could spend hours there, right? And unlike a lot of big tech executives, Zuckerberg is just going to give you the truth. You know, well, not, not that the others will lie, but I feel like Zuckerberg is going to be a lot more candid because he's like, all right, well, no one's going to get me in trouble if I say something. Hey, it's Zach from Boston Speaks Up. That is the voice of Alex Kantrowitz of Big Technology, which is a combo newsletter podcast news operation independently run by Alex. He's a longtime friend of mine. I met him when he was at Advertising Age way back in the day. He went on to be the tech correspondent at BuzzFeed for several years. And then he wrote what has become a wildly successful book, Always Day One. Uh, which is a behind-the-scenes view into how Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft have sort of stayed on top of the world through operating in this sort of day-one mindset. Um, Alex came on the podcast to talk about a bunch of topics, um, things that have been relevant in the news recently, everything from TikTok CEO testifying in front of Congress, Silicon Valley Bank spiral, you name it. Um, You might even see him regularly on CNBC, where he contributes a few times a month as sort of a big technology expert. Um, So without further ado, enjoy the podcast. And before we move on to the episode, a quick update for the community. In 2023, we're expanding the Boston Speaks Up platform, adding to our distribution channels and offering more ways for local businesses to support and collaborate with Boston Speaks Up. There are immediate opportunities to sponsor the Boston Speaks Up podcast where you can become a featured co-brand in our multi-platform distribution that spans social media, Boston Business Journal, Boston O, and the Boston O-Beat newsletter, as well as new channels, including the Value Creation Lab's blog and newsletter. We encourage folks to contact us at team at valuecreationlabs.co to learn more and discuss the possibilities. Thanks. Now on to the episode. Zach video here from Boston Speaks Up, and I'm here with Alex Kantrowitz, who's a CNBC contributor and the founder and lead writer at Big Technology. What's up, Alex? How are you? Hey, uh, not much. Good to see you, Zach. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Good to, good to have you here. And uh, as I like to start our podcast, we'd love to just um, ground people in sort of like your present day reality. So why don't you tell folks a little bit of um, what you're up to today with big technology and, and maybe people will recognize uh, your face when they see video clips popping around um, from this online because you've been been on CNBC uh, quite a bit recently, certainly. Um most recently, I saw you on, on TV talking about the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, talk a little bit about the, the mix of things that are keeping you busy these days. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. First of all, I just want to say for, the, for yeah. those listening, this isn't going to be remarkable. But anybody watching can see that we're both hanging out with exposed brick backgrounds. And it's always great to be able to speak to someone with an exposed brick background. So thank you. Like from New York to Boston, here we go. Um, but big technology. So big technology is a newsletter and a podcast. Uh, the podcast is called big technology podcast available in all podcast apps. I'm required to say that, uh, contractually and it covers the tech world and its impact on society and some business stories. Uh, the newsletter hits once a week on, on Thursdays. It's free for now. 
And the, the podcast is uh, twice weekly now. So there's a flagship interview every Wednesday with a tech insider or an outside agitator. And then on Fridays, I do a live show, typically with Ron John Roy, who's this great analyst. He writes a newsletter called Margins on Substack. And we like go live on LinkedIn and YouTube and take questions and talk about the week's news and put it on the feed right after that. And uh, this is where I'm coming up on three years of the big technology operation that started really in June 2020. So it's been a very interesting life cycle for it, you know, dealing with, you know, COVID, um, two different presidents in the U.S. and uh, and now financial crisis and, you know, up, big ups and downs for the big tech companies. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's been super fun. For a long time, I was a, a full-time journalist. So this is definitely, I mean, I mean, I still am, but just not in a newsroom anymore. So it's a different reality. And, uh, and I'm excited to talk to you about, about whatever you want to talk about, big technology awesome. or otherwise. We're going to definitely talk about big technology because there's few in the world I want to talk to about big technology um, outside of you. Like you're kind of tops on my list. Can you can you talk a little bit about Tech Insider versus Outside Agitator and just maybe mm-hmm. some recent examples of folks that you've you've interviewed that kind of fit in those two buckets? Absolutely. So, you know, I think that the listening to a podcast and your listeners have this experience too, right? It's not like you're going to go and get the world's truth in one episode. One of the nice things about being on a podcast is that you get to listen to different perspectives and then sort of get to form your own worldview after that. And as a reporter, it's kind of like taking people along through my process, right? Which is that I want to speak with the people inside the companies. Um, you know, like the I had the product manager on YouTube shorts. I had the guy responsible for, um, you know, inside Google that runs maps and um, assistant and all these other, you know, big, big uh, parts of Google, even search, right? We had Jan LeCun, who uh, is the head of AI research, the chief AI scientist at Meta. Um, so I want to bring perspectives from insiders like that because they know what's going on inside the companies and maybe with a little bit of prodding they'll actually tell us but i also want to get the critics in people like gary marcus who's talked a lot about how uh this new uh wave of ai is a bit over overblown um people like meredith whitaker who is one of the google walkout leaders um who might have a different narrative about how that company is operating than the company's executives and of course we bring on lots of journalists who are you know, from being in the industry, a bunch of them are my friends. So, you know, it sort of like takes listeners into like conversations of reporters as they, you know, um, shoot the breeze about what's going on in the industry. Very cool. So let's talk, talk a little bit about the, you mentioned you're contractually obligated to say, so, (laughs) so who's, who sort of are you in business with um, and, and who supports big technology? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that was kind of a joke, you know, because like, I, I feel like people really hate it when, you know, <laughs> people go on podcasts and um, just talk incessantly about the stuff they have to promote. So I just say it once and just kind of, you know, give it a wink. Um, but Big Technology and Big Tech, Big Technology, the newsletter, Big Technology podcast, those are both independent properties. So unlike most journalists who would work in a newsroom, I work independently, completely independently, which means that what you get on the show and in the newsletter is unfiltered. There are no editors for better or worse. And um, there's no real agenda that's moving it. It's not a right-leaning or a left-leaning publication. Um, I'm fairly down the middle. I try to see things with like a cool and level head, uh, you know, and sometimes succeed. And so that's sort of like people should know, you know, 
what you know where where what motivates the the coverage that they're seeing and with me i think it's fairly clear it's entirely uh, ad supported at this point also so i think that's important to note yeah and that was that was what we journalists call a rhetorical question because i wanted to i wanted to set up and just clear that one because i mm-hmm. i could tell the tongue in cheek but uh and 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 i actually wanted to dive into the, the the independence of your reporting how it came about um, and how important it is in, in in present day, but yeah, not not partner supported, but really just ad supported. So that so, but easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly part of a wave that you know I recall back when you still were at BuzzFeed, and your book Always Day One was out, which we, which we can talk about. Um, it seems that you know from from far away, but as a sort of as a fan, as an admirer of your work. Uh, it seemed to me that on the back of Always Day One and the great success of that book, it sort of gave you the the foundation, the launch pad to go over to Substack, go independent. Uh, is that correct? And can you and can you just talk a little bit about like what it's been like um, as an independent journalist in the modern day? And I think you do a really good job of the podcast format and the written format, and I think a, a newsletter sort of oriented or, or focused um, distribution is really is really smart but just you know it's it's a pretty good blueprint for journalists again not that it's, it's not that it's easy um, but how did you you know how long were you planning that out and and would you you know and, and would you attribute sort of like what's the journey in the arc of, of you becoming an independent writer did it start well before you left BuzzFeed and you were plotting your way and that was always the plan with the book I'd love to sort of just like let you riff on that a little bit. Yeah. So it was actually a lot messier than it might look like on the inside <laughs> because my book came out on April 7th, 2020, which was the worst time in like 112 years for an author to release a book. It was, I think, the peak death week in New York in COVID. And um, I watched, uh, you know, my launch parties and uh, and a media tour completely disintegrate in front of my eyes. And of course, that wasn't, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, a lot, that wasn't the worst part of that week. And, you know, but, you know, from, from like strictly looking at, at a business standpoint, like I realized that, um, my book was going to get nowhere if I stayed inside Buzzfeed, um, because we were, uh, a tech desk covering different things. Like I was assigned to con to cover, um, the different events that got canceled in the tech industry and like whether people were getting refunds from Airbnb and Verbo, which I think are important stories. But for me, like I had spent two years working on this book, Always Day One, which you reference, which is all about the inner workings of big tech. And I knew that if there was a chance that this book would get to the public, it wouldn't be within a newsroom. Like I was going to have to go basically full time and not just promoting and like speaking about it, but actually building on top of the issues that I had uncovered in the book. And that could have been freelancing because I had been in touch with a bunch of uh, editors before uh, launch week and then the COVID hit and they all ghosted me, you know, understandably. Um, but like I thought maybe some of them would come back around when things came back to normal. Mind you, this was in, you know, in early 2020. So I thought maybe by the summer COVID was going to be done. That was a mistake. Um, and uh, And so basically like that's what I, that's what, big technology began as was really just like a way for me to keep writing independently. I loved in the book process, being able to follow my curiosity and see where things led. And, um, and so I thought maybe I could do more of that on, on my own. And when I made my announcement that I was going independent, I had four pillars to it. 
One was freelancing. The other was, um, was public speaking, which I thought was going to be like, you know, more about pushing the book. And then I threw in, okay, we'll do a newsletter on Substack. And at the very last minute, I said, we'll do a podcast too. And, at, and when I, you know, put my announcement on Twitter, so many people seized onto the fact that it was going to be a newsletter now. And I was like, oh, well, that's what they want. Okay. Mm. So maybe that's what we're going to do. And I had a conversation with Hamish McKenzie, who's like one of the co-founders of Substack. And he said, listen, every time you write for somebody else, you're going to get paid once. You're going to reach their audience. And that's it. And every time you write on Substack, you're going to build a residual following. And they're going to come back week after week. So why would you write for someone else? And I thought, okay, that makes a lot of sense. So I started putting a lot more effort into Substack. And the podcast came a few weeks later. And you know, I looked up maybe towards the end of 2020 and realized that I had like a legitimate newsletter and podcast business. And this had a chance to be self-sustaining. And, and here we are, what, like two, well... I don't know, almost three years since, since launch and, and we're still going, which is awesome. That's wild. Yeah. It will be three year anniversary to that April 7th date you referenced, uh, mm-hmm. in just a couple, a couple weeks, weeks here, which, Crazy. Is, which, which is wild. Um, I'd love to discuss that you mentioned following your curiosity mm-hmm. in, the, in the following of your curiosity that you did in the book is what you're able to do as an independent writer. Well, let's, let's talk about the book and let's talk okay. about, I'd love to talk about the impetus for pursuing the book. Um, very thoughtfully, you reached out to me and another buddy at the top of this year and you were like, Hey, thank you for the role you played in the book. And I was like, Oh, that's right. Like Cantrowitz needed connections in Seattle. Cause he was like going up and just kind of surfing around, like, get, you know, get, you know, trying to get in with those insiders. Um, and I remember when you were on that book journey and, so cool to kind of you know have a little um, bit of line of sight and in, in, into it. Uh, talk about the impetus for uh, pursuing Always Day One, and then talk about that journey and, and and that pursuit of your curiosity. Thank you. So first of all, you guys helped a lot, and I appreciate <laughs> it. And thank you. And sorry it took me so long to write to you guys because you did play a big role in helping me ground, you know, uh, my my knowledge of the Seattle tech scene. Um, so Always Day One is a book about um, why Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft continue to dominate even as they get bigger. And I know it's been a tough year for them, but they're still, if you think about it, I think Apple and Microsoft now make up the biggest percentage of the S&P 500 that they've ever made. So these companies are completely defying the logic of big business, which is you typically get bigger and you get slower and then and then uh, you know smaller companies come in and they eat your lunch. And you know, of course, it's classic innovator's dilemma stuff. But just to put some context around it, last century, a company would last on the S&P 500 for 75 years, meaning that you really just needed one idea in your life and you could have a lifetime of success. Now you last on the S&P 500 for 15 years, meaning your one idea isn't going to get you very far. You're actually going to need about three and a half ideas. And if you think about these big tech companies all of them have reinvented themselves over and over and over again over time, right? Facebook, for instance, went from you know just a directory of friends to a newsfeed to you know not just Facebook the app, but Instagram and WhatsApp and Messenger, um, and now it's in the middle of another reinvention where it's trying to look like TikTok and another reinvention where it's trying to look like the metaverse. I mean, Amazon, you know, talk about Amazon, right? I mean, reinvented from a bookstore 
to a first-party marketplace that sells everything, to a third-party marketplace that brings in competitors to compete with its first-party marketplace offering, to a cloud service provider, to a grocery store, a um, a movie theater, uh, sorry, a movie studio. Not only that, uh, it also is a hardware manufacturer with the Kindle and a voice computing platform with the A word, which I will not say because I will wake her up and she will try to sell me more Amazon products. And this is this this sort of um, dedication to reinvention, right? Like it's always day one. You come in every day if it's as if it's your first day as a startup. The best thing about being a startup is you don't have to spend a minute sustaining the legacy product. All you have to do is worry about building what the market wants and meeting its need that day as best as you can. And that mentality is something that you see all throughout the tech giants. And when I got up close and personal with them in San Francisco, when I was working for BuzzFeed as a tech reporter there, um, I realized that it wasn't just a business strategy thing and it wasn't just a mentality thing, but it was a culture and a leadership thing. And it was all about processes, the processes that you put in place to reinvent and the technology that you put in place to reinvent and that enables these processes. And so pitch that story. And even before any publisher bought it, um, got on a plane to Seattle and basically said, Amazon is probably going to be the toughest company to crack here. So let me go here and make sure I get the Amazon part of the book right. Uh, that's eventually where we got the name. And because uh, always day one is what Jeff Bezos says. And that uh, that was the beginning. And so I called you guys right when I left, uh, right when I landed in Seattle. And, you know, I knew I had to get there. I just didn't know who to speak with. And uh, you guys put me in touch with some good people there. And uh, and so it went. Yeah. It's a very vibrant uh, tech ecosystem. And in a lot of ways, as I've moved back to Boston from Los Angeles, having spent five years in LA and spent a lot of time in San Francisco and more broadly Silicon Valley, um, and having had the opportunity of working with a lot of startups in Seattle, which is why I had, had some level of insight into that market, um, yeah, Seattle and Bo- like I find Seattle more like Boston than I mm-hmm. find Seattle like anything else. Um, but I also find Sil- I found Silicon Valley and, and Seattle to have like it, it, Seattle's an interesting mix between like East and, and West Coast. I guess I should say it's it's um, there's there's a there's a focus on EBITDA in Seattle that I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess from in in a lot of the investors I know appreciate. I know when we were talking like a lot of the. A lot of the folks that I, I knew in that market were sort of like, you know, successful VCs because they're investing in, you know, a lot of founders from that Amazon ecosystem. And I don't even remember like Connor Folly from Downstream Impact. And then they got acquired by Jungle Scout, which is from Summit Partners, like $100 million exit, like a few years later. And Connor was just like a very um, successful, like manager director at Amazon. And and so Amazon just says, has birth this incredible entrepreneurial ecosystem in Seattle. And then similarly, they're building and, and, and providing a lot of jobs here in, in Massachusetts where I am. So um, there's certainly that sort of, there's, there's positivity and sort of like, not just job growth, but like entrepreneurship. And so I, I acknowledge that and I, I'm sort of using that as a preface and saying like, you know, what do you, what do you think are some of the, um, challenges in the strength and power, you know, you meant, you mentioned Microsoft and Apple's dominance in the S and P. What do you think, you know, for, for 
what do you think that means to the overall innovation economy? Um, you know, good, good, bad, and ugly. Well, you know, now it's a very interesting moment because it does seem like the tech giants are more vulnerable than they ever have been, despite their massive size. Uh, and we'll see. This is sort of the ultimate challenge of whether they can go back to day one or not. Not to be cliche about it, but you have a company like Google, whose bread and butter search is now under threat by companies like OpenAI and and even Microsoft, right? Where it's just like, okay, well, people used to find things on the web in one way, and now they might find things on the web in another way. And you might say, all right, Google's so big. You know, there's how long have we heard about Google? You know, Google's antitrust stuff, right? That it's crowding out others and and making the level making the playing field unfair and ensuring its own dominance. And yes, a lot of that's been true. But the thing that was largely left out of that conversation is that tech innovation has a way of upending these incumbents, even when there's a chance that it's or even when it seems like they're going to be on top forever. If you think about it, I mean, think about the last big antitrust development we had in the big tech world, which was Microsoft, right? Now, what is the thing that really did Microsoft in for its lost decade, right? Was it the fact that it was um, embroiled in so many big antitrust cases in front of the federal government? Or was it the fact that we moved from desktop to cloud and from cloud and from desktop to mobile, which then all of a sudden makes the desktop operating system du jour? Windows, right, less valuable and sort of throws the company for a complete loop. Now you could argue, okay, maybe the fact that Microsoft wasn't able to ride those uh, ride those changes and ride the transformation so well was somewhat of a result of the antitrust stuff. But what, what technology has a way of doing is sort of clearing the decks and saying, okay, this is the new paradigm. Who wants to compete? And you see company like Meta, right, formerly Facebook, trying to get ahead of one of those with its whole metaverse push, but you never can quite be sure when that big shift is going to happen or what that big shift is going to be. So a year ago, everyone's talking about metaverse as if it's assuredly going to be the next paradigm in tech. And right now everyone's pinged right back to generative AI. And so we think about this, the, um, these big tech companies, and yes, they do seem, um, they do seem like BMS who just like crowd out anybody who wants to come compete with them. And they are big and they've gotten to be that size because they've successfully rode these waves and transformed with this day one mentality through each one of them. But that doesn't mean that they're going to continue to successfully do it each time. They got to go back to the drawing board each time. They have some advantages, money, you know, brains, uh, technology, lots of data, but they're not going to be the surefire winners. And that's sort of what makes this so exciting, not only as uh, a journalist covering the business, but for anybody working in the business, is that, you know, it could be exhausting, but it's also just, you know, invigorating to know that you're not, you're not there basically pushing the same flagship product that your company has for the last four decades. You're there on the, really the cutting edge of change. And your impact will be whether your company survives it or not. That's pretty cool. And that's sort of the state of play right now with big tech versus smaller tech. Yeah, well said. I want to double click on a few of those things. Let's start with let's start with artificial intelligence. And from reading from reading your newsletter and following you, like I, I think it, it you seem to correct me if I'm wrong and, and sort of expand on this. AI is a pretty interest is a key technology that all of these big tech companies leverage to um 
enhance their ability to sort of be in that always day one um, posture. Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Oh yeah. So so we're in the middle of this big revolution of AI right now, where everyone's talking to their chatbots and their mom's talking to chatbots and all this stuff, and they're using image generation technology like Dolly and Midjourney. And this is, of course, going to be very powerful, very interesting technology that I think is going to play a big role in the tech world. Um, but but AI extends far beyond that. And I think that it's much more than just chatbots and much more than just image generation. And inside the big tech companies, they've been using artificial intelligence to change the way that they work for quite some time. And the way I think about this is there's really two different types of work, right? One work is One type of work is called idea work. Right, that's anything involved with coming up with a new idea and bringing it to life, and the other type of work is execution work, or you could call it support work. Maybe that's a better word for it, but that's basically anything involved with supporting an existing, existing product or process. And through the last hundred years or so, we've actually gone through some very dramatic shifts in terms of the ratio of ideal work to execution work. In the industrial age, all the work we did was execution work. So. Someone would come up with an idea for a factory, be like, all right, we're going to make these widgets. That was the idea work. And then everybody's day was spent on execution work, making those widgets. If you said, hey, I think we should make you know, these other products, you would basically be fired or sent back to the line and laughed off because your job there was not to bring your ideas into the workplace. Then in late 70s, we moved to, or mid 70s, we moved to the knowledge economy where all of a sudden we said, hey, actually, maybe we should ask the workers what they think because you know, their knowledge can actually help us succeed, not just their labor. And that was great. But the thing is, in the knowledge economy, we still had so much execution work. Think about all the support work that underlies every existing function, every maintenance, piece of maintenance for a flagship product. And you actually have a knowledge economy might be a real misnomer because it's only a tiny bit of knowledge that moves the knowledge economy. It's mostly, again, you know, labor and execution. That's where AI comes in, in in this current age or where it makes things really interesting because you can use AI to minimize the amount of execution work you do and maximize the amount of time that you have for ideal work. And once you do that, you're able to reinvent because you're spending your time not maintaining existing products but building new ones. I'll give you one example. Inside Amazon, there's a program called Hands Off the Wheel, or there has been for almost the past decade now. And the idea was in the retail organization, they had these people called vendor managers who were um, who were ordering and stocking and negotiating with, with brands to get their products in the fulfillment centers. So if you're a vendor manager and you're working with Tide, you say, I need this many units of detergents in this fulfillment center and that fulfillment center at this price at this time. Can you do it? And Tide says, no, maybe we can't, we can't. You negotiate and eventually, you know, you stock the warehouse. And what Amazon realized was that the technology that they had, AI technology, could basically digest all the data that they had been doing across two decades of ordering and actually decide, okay, well, um, we can put this on autopilot via the AI and probably do a better job than people. And I actually spoke with someone inside Amazon who led this product project because Amazon did play ball with me for the book eventually. And um, his name was Ralph Hebrick, who was the head of the machine learning there. And basically, he said that it took a few, a few tries, but eventually they got their AI predicting and and um, being able to order better than people. And um, they eventually rolled out AI 
in this process, you know, initially saying, okay, to take a little bit and then saying, take the almost the full workload to the point where now, if you're a vendor, let's say you're tied, um, or maybe a slightly smaller one, um, you're going to be negotiating with like an internet portal and not a person anymore. So you can actually go through that negotiation process with Amazon's AI, and that will be the way that they stock. And so by doing this, the company has made room for the people working on, you know, formerly in retail to be working on bigger and newer and more inventive projects. Um, just to give one example, Dilip Kumar, who used to do pricing and promotions inside Amazon, you know, got together with a lot of people uh, and tried to solve the most annoying part of physical retail, which is checking out, you know, buying, going, browsing is pretty fun. Checking out is usually a pain in the butt. Um and they are the team that you know would have been working to maintain the retail business, but they're the ones that ended up inventing Amazon's uh, Amazon Go, or the technology behind Amazon Go, which is going to be licensed, you know, throughout retail operations. I think fairly soon, which is basically something that will be like you pick up the product, you scan in, you pick up whatever you want, and then you walk out, no checkout, all done through technology. And that's how like, Amazon keeps inventing over and over, minimize execution work through AI make room for ideal work and reinvent over and over again. And it's been a pretty successful formula for them, I would say. I love that. As someone who prides himself as an idea man, um, this this future AI-oriented world uh, builds well for focusing on... For like, you. I don't know, yeah, for, for me. And I think a lot of the ideation that that can... can, can st- I think that's a very um, positive way of looking at like a, a good sort of anecdote to share with the world and sort of like how AI can help enhance people to focus on like the creative sort of ideation um, side of, of work. Um, yeah. Which it's also just a yeah. much more exciting work day. I mean, if you think about yeah. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right. Where like, these are the needs that we need to get met in our lives. The basic one is subsistence, right? I have a job I can provide for my family. The very top is self-actualization, right? The, the height of, uh, you know, humans meeting their needs is actually to self-actualize and to to fulfill your potential. And when you're working on create, creative uh, things and when you're working on invention inside a company versus pushing paper, you're now moving the workday from the very bottom of the pyramid to the top. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's very cool. Let's talk with... You've referenced Amazon a bit, and it's great that you cracked that nut and you got in, in those walls of Amazon, but you got inside the walls of, of Facebook as well. And we were kind of connecting pre-podcast. Like I had asked you sort of like the most challenging interview you had, and you mentioned Mark Zuckerberg. So I'd like to talk about that. I'd like to talk about sort of like specifically, I'd like to, to learn a bit more about what it was like to interview um, Mark. And, and then I'd also like to just get your thoughts on Meta. You, you sort of referenced the the bet they're making on the eventual metaverse um, permeating society. And, and, and are they, are they too early? You know, they're of course early. Are they too, you know, is it, is it too early that it's, it's taking, you know, focus away from um, other ways that they could be bolstering their position right now, you know, maybe vis-a-vis like AI or maybe you have anecdotes where they're just, just as impressively leveraging AI for, for things internally, or maybe they aren't. Um, but I'm just curious, like your general thoughts on meta um, and and sort of what it was like to to sit down with with Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, it was pretty interesting to sit down with Zuckerberg. I mean, the the challenging thing with him is that he, uh, you know, you have a limited amount of time and you could spend hours there, right? And unlike a lot of big tech executives, Zuckerberg is just going to give you the truth. You know, well, not 
not that the others will lie, but I feel like Zuckerberg is going to be a lot more candid because he's like, all right, well, no one's going to get me in trouble if I say something. So he actually <laughs> feels more comfortable, I think, speaking to the actual issues within Facebook. And, and of course, he's full control of the company. So that's like, you can ask him like meaningful questions and he can give meaningful answers. Um, but he also knows, you know, not only the ad business, not only the media business and entertainment business, but he knows a lot about AI. He knows a lot about engineering. He knows a lot about politics. He knows a lot about sort of sociology behind his network. And so you really do need to spend time like um, you got to be very, very precise on your questions with him because um, the answers can go in all different sorts of ways and they're going to be interesting for sure. But like, it's not going to be an, an it's not going to be an easy interview. He's it's not not because he's evasive, which is important to point out, but just because like, um, yeah, he can go all over the place, and you're definitely going to learn stuff. But you have to be very economic with your questions and make sure that you're asking the ones that are going to get you the most bang for your buck because you don't get you don't get to hang out, uh, you know, with with Zuckerberg every day. So that was the challenge for me. One How of the much time that did I you did, have? Sorry, oh, How 45 minutes. You? Yeah. Okay. So it wasn't too short, but one of the things that I did was I spoke with a lot of people about him beforehand. And then like, while we were having our meeting, I was like, so Mark, I heard this about you, you know, what's your reaction here? And, you know, that was, that was pretty fun to like go through those things and, um, and try to, you know, yeah, basically like confirm, have him confirm or deny, you know, the things that I had been hearing. Was there like a particularly surprising moment in the, in the meeting where he was like, incredibly candid or, or, or surprised you with thoughts that you hadn't anticipated. Yeah. So we were talking, so Facebook had been building a dating product. Cause I'd been asking, I was like, do you use Snapchat? Like what products do you use? And he's like, yeah, look, we were building a dating product. And he's like, I had to try out the dating apps. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, okay. I was like, you used your own picture. He's like, yes, I did. And one, uh, he was found like he was on one app and he was trying to show it off to his wife. Um, and, uh, and he showed her like the person that he was like served as like the one match of the day or whatever it was. And it happened to be one of her friends and she was about to go to lunch with this person. <laughs> so that must've been a kind of awkward lunch because in San Francisco, you never know, but right. it must've been an awkward. No, Mark is not actually looking. He was just trying yeah. to figure out how dating products work because Facebook is yeah. building dating. So we are, we would like to immediately refute rumors um, that Mark Zuckerberg is a swinger. We cannot confirm that that is the case. No, we, we can't, can't deny confirm. it either. Well, it was but we're not going to confirm it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting. And I guess follow up on, on just on Meta and, and at the time it was Facebook. Like, what were your thoughts? And, and it's you referencing this before we went live. Like, we spent some time together, like when Snapchat was really on that ascent. Mm-hmm. Um, I had moved to Silicon Beach and you yeah. know, we had met when you were at advertising age. Right. And in 2011, 12, like I kind of made that move to LA because I thought it was a good place for me to sort of build my profile as a, as a mark, as a hungry mid 20 marketer that was hard, having a hard time burrow high enough on the, on the East Coast. And, and Silicon Beach was this burgeoning tech community and Snapchat was, bursting on the scene and all the, all the ad tech companies you covered at ad age mm-hmm. were like getting like acquired. And then they were becoming a monetization team at Snapchat and it was Snapchat. It was, it was just, everything was Snapchat. And like, there was great went, energy there. It was Wasn't such there. amazing energy. Uh, Dogtown. Woody, Dogtown. Oh, I just love it. it. It's, it's a special place. Our wife and I got engaged there. Our daughter was mm-hmm. born there, like really special place. But the, the scene there, I mean, I remember the day I woke up, and uh, I had a bunch of text messages from like 
report uh, Carrie Flynn, who's at mm-hmm. Axios now. She's like, Zach, I think you live right by the Snapbot. Like, go check. <laughs> and I like look and I like go out my house and I'm like, oh wow, like there's like a vending machine that's got like a smiley face on it. Got one of the first pairs of spectacles and mm-hmm. did my review for Recode because like no one had access to it except people that were randomly in Venice Beach. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on that moment in time for Snap um, and and the offer that Evan Spiegel ultimately turned down from Facebook and and how you sort of think that that, that that's all going for, for Snapchat. Yeah. Or I should say Snap Inc. Yeah, it was a very interesting moment. And it seemed like Snap was on the ascent with no real ceiling in sight. And Snap really acted like a company that whose success was going to last forever. Uh, and it didn't put enough effort in, I don't think. It, one of the stories I came out with that week that I was down there was that Snap was basically ignoring influencers and they couldn't make their way into the company's you know, support system or whatever. And that inevitably harmed the company because influencers are business people and they will go where the money is and they will go where the support is. And a lot of them ended up going, you know, you could create amazing things with stories. I mean, do you remember the Snapchat stories influencers or these people like Sean Roos and whoever they were? Yeah. They, they were Jerome jar. They were so famous. And Eventually, like they and, and, and Snap failed to realize that they were a draw on the platform yeah. and they went elsewhere. They went to YouTube and they yeah. went to Instagram when Instagram copied stories. Mm-hmm. And Snap, I believe, is still suffering from this mm-hmm. because the, the chat part of Snapchat is doing great, right? The company is growing by so many users every, every quarter. It's really a tremendous, and, and, but it's growing as a chat app not as a media app and the media app is where the money is. Right. And so that's been behind some of snaps, big troubles and that, and a, I guess a subpar ad tech team. So, you know, those, those acquisitions might've helped a little bit, but not enough. And now you see yeah. its top sales executives have just moved to Netflix, which yeah. is an interesting progression. So yeah. I think Evan was right. was definitely right. in not taking a $3 billion deal from, from Facebook for that acquisition, right? What snaps, Snap's market cap now is way above three. I mean, he might have been diluted a little bit in, in the IPO, but it's a much bigger company now, independent. And I think we need these independent companies. But I do think that it became a little high on its own supply. And it believed its own myth a little bit too much. And a little bit more humility on behalf of Snap would have gone a long way. Yeah, that's interesting. I also want to go back and find that article that you wrote. Where were you at at the time? At BuzzFeed. That week? Yeah, that was BuzzFeed. Okay, so that was. Um, let's talk about. I like to talk about voice a, a bit, and and I think voice kind of coalesces in with artificial intelligence. But um, you mentioned the A word mm-hmm. earlier. Um, she, you know, they're all. You know, she's always listening. Like it's you know in in the TV world, like as you, as you know, like I spent spent a lot of time working with like Vizio and. You know, the, the TV's off and you see a red light, the TV's mm-hmm. on. Like, the, like every, like we're being listened by more than just a from Amazon. Um, yeah. what's the role of sort of like voice and, and sort of, you know, just this sort of like subtle voice capture and like, what is it and what it means? It's like, I think in particular what it means from an, like 
not so much a, I, I certainly what it means from a privacy perspective, but like what it means from a sort of um, like an artificial intelligence perspective, like how it plays a role in the future. Because there is, is there's all these walled gardens. Like just speaking from a media world perspective, like let's talk TV. Like there's all this friction in television. Like the way my five year old daughter navigates a television is with the remote, is with voice. Um, I feel like we're and, and I've talked to a lot of parents. It's all mm-hmm. the same. Seems the in the it seems we're conditioning the next generation to use voice to uh, maneuver life. So I feel like voice and AI are this incredibly powerful um, uh, companions. And, and I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I'm not very worried about the privacy side of it, just because if these companies were to really listen in and do weird things with your your the audio in your house, there would be a tremendous cost for them to pay that would go far beyond the benefits of snooping. They, may, they, may, they might do it, but I don't think they will. I think it would be stupid of them. Not that they haven't done any stupid things. Yeah, right. It me. wouldn't I'm be just, good business. I'm just talking yeah. it through in my head, but overall yeah. I, I sort yeah. of, or I guess out loud, but I, yeah. I sort of feel fairly secure in that data. Mm-hmm. I do think that one of the interesting things about this current waves of a, wave of AI, right, is that it's been all text chatbot and not voice chatbot. And I think we're going to eventually get there. But the thing that you realize when you talk to these like things like Bing and stuff like that is they're exceptionally loquacious. They love to talk. I mean, they got trained by some chatty humans. They talk more than most humans do. And maybe, maybe they do their own podcast, right? And then, they, they talk more than these two podcasts. And, right? and as you tweeted, I think, yesterday, yeah. not everyone needs a podcast. That was not about you, by the way. Um, I think I got I, I got this pitch from like some I mean I don't care I'll say it I got this yeah. pitch to do some like cross promo from like an up and coming tech uh, podcast and I looked yeah. at it they were misleading about you know where they ranked and I watched yeah. some of the podcast and I was just like this sucks like you guys you don't need a podcast <laughs> so anyway that well, was I guess the, on the flip that that means when you did your quick forensics on me you didn't think it was too bad so no yours good. yours is You're good. here today yours thank is good. you. And it's even better with you here. Oh, I appreciate that. So the the thing is that like, yeah, so the AI talks a lot. And I think that eventually if you build the smarts into voice assistants, I mean, it does seem like, doesn't it seem like it's going that direction where yeah. like it's just going to, these voice assistants like will get smarter and they'll learn to be more brief. And that then they're actually augmented reality too. Yeah. Like I, I start to imagine like that. And then the, the augmented sort of mm-hmm. annotated layer of information in front of you, it's, yeah. you know, you start to cobble these technologies together and, and you start to see the, you start to see like the future um, unfolding. Right. Then. Just wait. I mean, that's a thing. Like we're never going to have uh, NPCs in, in video games anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, have you seen the movie free guy? No. All right. So it's my dad's favorite movie. So shout out dad. Um, It's about, so Ryan Reynolds is a non-player character in a video game and he sort of wakes up one day and he's sentient. Like he's like, Oh God, like, you know, and he realizes he's, he's in a video game and he's actually smart and we're going to imbue this sort of intelligence into every uh, character in video games. And eventually we'll have avatars uh, that we'll see maybe through these AR glasses or maybe through our phones or maybe on our screens that are able to talk and hold a conversation. And we're just getting started here. It's very, very exciting. It's a little bit scary, but it's yeah. very, very exciting in terms of what type of innovation we're about to see. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So let's talk a little bit, I, I guess a little bit scary. Um, certainly um, the U S government would think so. Um, let's talk about what's going on down in DC yesterday. Let's talk about the, 
TikTok CEO testifying. Oh, I yes. thought you had a, a lovely report on this uh, in terms of, you know, perhaps uh, the CEO of TikTok being exposed a bit of, of if he was trying to inspire confidence that um, he's not a, you know, the bite dance isn't just puppet mastering right now. I don't think, I don't think he did a great job of that. Um, talk about why TikTok um, is under fire right now what it means for a Chinese owned business to have the data it has and, and what it may be doing with that data. Um, and then talk about sort of the, the latest over the last 24 hours. Yeah. So I think that this is all happening now because of the war in Ukraine, weirdly, but the United States just had a full reexamination of its businesses and where they do, where they operate and decided that they didn't want to operate in uh, inside Russia. And one of the things that people have talked about, it's like a natural, like, well, what if China invades Taiwan? Like, what's going to happen with TikTok? And that, I think, caused lawmakers to start thinking more about it. It's also under review um, in this uh, part of the government called CFIUS, which reviews foreign investment uh, in the U.S. because uh, ByteDance bought Musical.ly, um, which is sort of like the predecessor to to TikTok, which it turned into TikTok. So there's like some review there. And I think the conclusion was that, you know, this is something that could be used to manipulate public uh, perception in the United States if a bad actor or if the Chinese government, which you could make a case, basically is able to do what it wants with TikTok. Um, you know, if that happened, if that, if that, yeah, if they wanted to, they could do it. And in the case of a conflict with Taiwan, you know, that's a you know potential problem, and we don't want to get to that place. So now everybody is starting to examine it. You know that's the good faith sort of perspective on it. The bad, you know, what, what, if you're a little bit you know more attuned to the politics, you also know that politicians are always looking to score points, and they went ham on big tech, and then realized that this was sort of critical to the U.S. industry, and so they stepped back, and now they're going. Now they've found like a pretty opportune target um, with TikTok, and you know, they're, they're, they realize that they could ban it or, you know, cause it to force a sale and wouldn't actually harm American industry might help by driving users to YouTube and Facebook. And, you know, we'll see if we want a government that involved. But, um, but that's why you end up having uh, the CEO of TikTok, uh, yeah, CEO of TikTok, Xiao Chu, come to uh, the U.S. Congress yesterday for a hearing about TikTok's, you know, behavior when it comes to data practices, TikTok's, um, you know, assurances that China is not involved. And the U.S. government came with some pretty good questions. And uh, and I would say that, like, you know, the biggest weakness in that entire hearing was that you saw very clearly that TikTok really doesn't make the calls. It's by dense. And here, let me read just a few examples just to give you a sense as yeah. to what I'm talking about. And this was in the story yesterday. Um, and I did get some pushback on it, but I'm just going to read it anyway. And I think this is this is fairly clear, right? So let's see. So um, so Chu said, okay, he was asked to say definitively that TikTok wouldn't promote messages supporting China, Chinese hostilities towards Taiwan. Why don't you just say I can say definitively that we we can't? But he didn't say that. He couldn't say that. Then he was asked. Um, to commit that TikTok wouldn't sell its data. Mm. You know, he couldn't do that. Non-committal. Then again. he was asked, who helped you prep for this hearing? 
And he gave some roundabout answer like, oh, well, a lot of people were blowing up my phone. Couldn't say that it wasn't, you know, wasn't by dance. I mean, wasn't by dance. By dance yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. So does that sound like someone that runs an app? No, I don't think so. And I'm getting some some flack on Twitter today um, saying that like, you know, this is speculation. I mean, anybody watch the hearing? Because if you watch the hearing, you saw it was plain yeah. and true. And there's yeah. no other way to see it. And yeah. so... Um, that was my main takeaway, and I think that will make people in the U.S. even more concerned. Although I, I continue yeah. to think we have to wait for a foul to see anything happen to TikTok. We haven't seen that foul yet, but who knows? Interesting. Yeah, what, like what are the – and just as an example, like is the flack that you're getting on Twitter, folks – like is it folks that just believe that the CEO of TikTok is more – um, in control than than his that not you you're simply yeah. exposing his answers so right. he's the one suggesting that he doesn't have the answers yeah and you're simply because I find what you just read and and I saw the part about like when you were like he, he wouldn't even be, say definitively who did you watch that YouTube meeting. video I did I got to watch the video oh, yeah it's yeah I watched the video I, like I it to me that's you just kind of you're you're not even reading tea leaves. You're like presenting them. Right. You're like, this is, that's exactly what it is. This is the noncommittal sort of matter of fact response. So I think you're getting at something that's really important. That's worth talking about, which is that there is going to be a constituency that's highly pro TikTok in the U S that's going to be the political calculation that the U S government is going to have to worry about. And Mm -hmm. by the way, that isn't just going to be everyday TikTok users. It's going to be journalists who have, um, who have TikTok accounts who are going to yeah. make this seem like a real foul on the behalf of They love of the US. their juiced views on TikTok. Yes, they, they have love TikTok accounts. By the way, I have a TikTok account. But Me too. If the right I, thing to team. do is ban it, then go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you have it because yeah. it's part of the mix, and you know, like exactly, the, the right thing to ban is like it's not going to not going to lose sleep at night. Right. Exactly. And so, and they're also they're also they've taken a lane, and they don't want to let go of that. And I think they also have sources inside. TikTok or something like that, or they've been persuaded by TikTok PR. Um, it's very interesting. But like TikTok's head of operations yesterday came out and called these concerns that the, or the the hearing xenophobic, which to me is just like so off base. It's not xenophobic to bring up real concerns about data privacy. And it's even to me the hearing, and I sat through many of these hearings and most of them are garbage, but it felt even more justified to see the stuff that um, TikTok was talking around versus, mm. you know, actually addressing head on. It was a very revealing yeah. hearing, which you don't see yeah. too often. You, yeah. you learn nothing from Mark Zuckerberg's <laughs> hearings outside of Congress, uh, you know, not really knowing how to use their phones, asking about sending a we- email on WhatsApp. So, yeah. Well, few, few questions. First one, you mentioned that some good questions were asked yesterday. What questions weren't asked that you would have liked to have seen asked? Oh, that's a good one. I don't know. I think they really did ask the questions that I that I wanted to see. I just wanted okay. to hear a little bit more about the connection of TikTok and ByteDance. Yeah. That was mostly it. Yeah. I mean, they were asking about financial numbers. I would have loved to know the answers to those, but they are private companies, so you can't do anything about that. So I think that, that look, this is one of the hearings. Uh, you know what? Here's here's what I would have liked to have seen that I didn't see. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's Congress people learning to just be quiet and listen. You're at a hearing. Let's hear the witness. Not you. It's not yeah. about hearing the Congress. It's about yeah. hearing the witness. So you have someone who's sitting in front of you who actually has a penalty for not telling you the truth. So mm-hmm. go find some stuff out, right? 
And I felt that there were members of Congress that were just way too interested in having a YouTube moment, which always happens. So like, this mo- was like really delivering outrageous. long monologues, with long monologues, the, yeah. asking questions that don't make any sense, and then having yeah. them try to give some nuance, and then them saying yes or no. I asked you a yes or no. It's like, right? That's embarrassing for the U.S. Congress. So look, it's not all going to be pretty. These are people that are you know with varying levels of preparation. Um, but for the clowning around that we had, we also had some really good questions. So yeah, that that I appreciated, and. Well, you- uh, so yeah. I pointed out that the to the uh, let's see the COO of of TikTok, um, V Pappas, I this person um, tweeted about this the xenophobic line, and I said that that's quite an interesting way to put it. And they said that they want to talk. So like, I'm here, I'm ready. Uh, I followed up on a reply and DM. So if we get a chance to talk. You know, I'm definitely going to ask these questions and I'm willing to have my mind changed if, if that's what it comes to. But, um, but I, I, I don't know. I think it's interesting the way that TikTok has defended themselves. Maybe they sound a little bit desperate, honestly, and maybe they're very worried that this enforcement action will actually be taken. Yeah. Well, it seems so. Um, it's, it, it seems that there's, there's some, there's some worry. I, I would think that there'd be more confidence and bravado behind the answers yesterday if if you felt more confident in your in your current in your current position or we're allowed are, are to you gonna, yeah or yeah exactly yeah. um and i guess that speaks to the, the sort of who's really controlling things here which is bite dance um cnbc will we be on cnbc talking about this how regularly are you on cnbc like talking about these topics and then Mm-hmm. And sort of from there, I'd, I'd love to talk a bit to you about um, some of the recent things you've been on CNBC talking about, which is the Silicon Valley Bank spiral. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, CNBC, yeah, if if they, uh, you know, I'm on like three times a month. Yep. So they have like a really good mix of contributors and I'm one of them and I'm very grateful to be. And, you know, yesterday during the hearing, for instance, like I was on standby in case they wanted to break out. And, mm-hmm. um, and there was like, I think, you know, good enough testimony that, you know, they kept on and, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, but you know, we'll see if they call me, I'll be on. And if they don't, then I'll wait for the next opportunity. All right, cool. Well, let's talk about that recent opportunity you had. So, you know, here in Boston and it's yeah. like this in a lot of communities, um, so last I had checked and I have a pretty, I've, I've had a pretty intimate relationship over the years with Silicon Valley bank. They sponsored my po- uh, Boston speaks up for mm. three years. Did um, that just end? Because of this, well, it, end, it ended at the end of December. At oh. which point, I, I and I so I, I had some tea leaves that I could have read that mm-hmm. I was reading for what were your tea leaves. Uh, Q two of last year, yeah. Um, there was a big shift in the um, amount of investors in Boston that were investing in mm-hmm. um, in alignment with with seemingly with SVB's interest in Boston and, and the investors were kind of like going outside of Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in December, you know, I had some candid discussions with people who are like, like lovely people who, I mean, SVB has, has in all these communities, but certainly in Boston, like a big infrastructure that mm-hmm. basically supports founders in particular first time founders. Mm-hmm. And so there's constantly events, there's programming, there's, um, there's, they're supporting, you know, the, the, the resources that go into podcasts like Boston Speaks Up that are, that didn't exist in a Boston market, you know, for, oh, for you know for founders, and so you know there's a there's a big hole and a vacuum actually left that the SVB is gone. But at, in December, um, you know, it, it it was communicated to me that 
they had to tighten their belts across the board mm. big time. Um, and I won't get into the specifics, but like I even learned like, I mean, budgets that they had for X, Y, and Z. Cause these are people that I'm, you know, they're, they're my peers. They're, they're millennials like us that are in mm. important positions at SBB in Boston, whether they're in the um, sort of like series A and below group or in the, like the frontier tech group, which is like above series mm. A and they, you know, whether it was for you know community events and programming, or or sponsorships, or um, uh, inv- you know investments and resources in in startups, it was just like all these budgets were, were coming down, um, and so that was in December, um, mm-hmm. and so you know there was a potential for us to maybe stay in, in some level of relationship, but the, the budgets weren't really there. And I was like, hey, it's fine. I'll, like we'll invest in in ourselves, and and we found some other interesting opportunities for mm-hmm. for Boston Speaks Up through through Value Creation Labs, my my venture business, and um and then this all happened, and I was like, oh wow, um this this certainly um it was less surprising to me, I guess, but still 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 surprising, and it and my my big concern, um, which is why I was really rooting for for First Republic Bank and all of this mm-hmm. is. You know they have they've been following the SPB model in Boston, and and uh, the one of the one of the dudes who's a buddy of mine, um, it, he used to be the GM of Bostono, where where this podcast indicates. Um, you know he's part of a group that's creating infrastructure and programming and a foundation for startups like SPB had, and they're like trying to step up right now and and bring a lot um, into the market because there's. Uh, you'll find there's more first-time entrepreneurs in Boston uh, than any other city. And SBB was res- like banking with 70% of the venture firms and startups in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, last I checked. So there's um, so there's a like really sad story here of like, what's this mean for this regional, very significant uh, innovation hub in the United States? Mm-hmm. Uh two, five, 10 years from now from the fallout of this. So a little bit of color for me on like my kind of attachment um, personally and professionally to all of this. And just kind of curious, you know, curious your, your thoughts, which you've, you've been sharing publicly on, on the matter. And, and in particular, you know, it, it obviously helps big banks. What's the good, bad and ugly about it and overall helping big banks that maybe don't put the same type of infrastructure and, and initiatives in place to support higher risk, early stage, first time mm-hmm. founders like SVB was, and not yeah. saying that that's the reason they collapsed. I'm not saying, I, I don't even think that that actually is, no. um, but what they were doing there was really valuable work to the economy. And I don't think the big banks will be doing the same thing. Yeah. We've had some debates about this on the podcast where it was like, um, Yes, SVB, you know, basically gave a level of service to first-time founders and smaller companies that um, you know you you can basically be sure helped innovation because banking is a pretty important part of running a business when you're running a business, and this definitely helped. And they got level of service that they wouldn't have gotten at the bigger banks, and that's the, the issue with the bigger banks is that they don't care about you unless you're really big, which makes it harder for smaller companies to do well. Mm-hmm. You know, on the other hand, they also like enabled, they did venture investing and, and they enabled a lot of the, um, froth that went on in the zero interest rate times and yeah. clearly believed they were going to go on forever because they're they a big investor in whoop. Yep. Like, like 50, 56 million. Exactly. In whoop. I and mean, that, you, that, yeah. And, and Ron John Roy, who comes on on Fridays on, on big technology podcast pointed this out that deposits in Silicon Valley bank tripled 
while the rest of the economy went up by uh, like 30%. So you think about it, they were also part of this cycle of just like massive funding to startups without lots of checking. And um, and that led to like, you know, froth in the economy, which never really had to be tamped down by inflation. They bet that the froth would continue by doing these, you know, low interest, effectively low, a little bit higher than zero, but almost you know, but less than 2% interest, long duration mortgage-backed securities, and they got hit in the face for it. So it's a very interesting, very interesting story. It's a very interesting story. And uh, look, I look, the hope here is I feel the same way as you. Let's hope that that um, the economy has learned, the businesses in the economy, banks in the economy, startups in the economy have learned some lessons, you know, now that the rates have gone up and we won't end up in a, in a full devaluation mode of like the dollar. Right. For instance, I'm not putting uh, one Bitcoin against a million dollars like some might, but, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see. It's going to be interesting. And and you would hope that this the financial system comes out somewhat stable. But just today we're seeing, you know, we had I mean, this week we had the Credit Suisse capitulation, right? The sale to UBS. And we're already seeing more weakness in smaller banks. So and then, of course, there's the commercial real estate aspect of all this thing, which is that like cities are starting to to. um you know, basically not get the recovery they expected after COVID. And a lot of these big buildings have commercial real estate loans with regional banks. And what happens if that goes away, you know, for those banks, you know, do we see cascading problems? I guess it's all on the table, but I hope for the optimistic end. So we'll see. Alex, you're being super generous with your time. I have a few, I have a few more questions that I definitely want to like get into, um, and really just, just kind of want to just take a moment of like giving you some gratitude, man. Like, thank you for this. Thank this you. Is, yeah, this is great. Yeah, I can um, hang on for like ten more yeah. minutes or so. If that's, oh, yeah, that's that's perfect. Great. Set my internal clock here. Okay. Um, I do want to double click back back on Meta and the Metaverse mm-hmm. specifically, um, and just your thoughts on. Do you, like how you see it coming into fruition? Like right now, there's those commercials from uh, Meta. I'm sure you see about. Oh yeah, like, I watched it last night. Yeah, going into the fires and and like how it's going to help firefighters. And I think you know it, it's perhaps a bit extreme, it, almost un- like almost like unbelievable right now. Where it's like, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way, and I can see why the creatives came up with that in their own vacuum. But my immediate like ad ad um, analysis of it was like. Hmm, I don't know if I love that. So I think there's, so that's, I'm curious what you think about like the branding and positioning of like, what is the immediate term? Like, here's how to think about metaverse. Cause I don't know if meta is nailing that. Um, and then just generally like, where do you think, um, you know, how do you think the metaverse sort of plays out and in, in, in if so in, in meta's favor? Well, yeah, it's good. I watched that ad for the last <laughs> night. Um, it was the first time I'd seen it in a while. And okay. someone had put okay. it out to me because, what it shows is not really a vision of a social metaverse, but an enterprise metaverse. And right, like if you think about yeah. the firefighters, the doctor, yeah, it's like a secure yeah, the school, it's, the museum. This is not about yeah. people hanging out together in some other universe. The mm-hmm. metaverse is actually the wrong term for that, right? So mm-hmm. it's just sort of a technology application. And yeah. I really wonder what happens to a company like Meta that um, is selling the metaverse, but it's not a social product. You're, right. you're the company that built Facebook, for goodness sake. So are you going to yeah. be able to succeed with with uh, virtual reality? I don't know. Virtual reality, not in a social context. Like, is that 
what you're really pivoting toward. And if that's what it is, like you're going to come up against specialized companies like Magic Leap, who build who are building entirely for enterprise and not for consumer use cases. And uh, it's a very interesting and and risky path for Meta to go strategically because this is not what they know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't know. I mean, they don't know surgery. So no, it's just yeah. And to your point, I mean, it's a if the umbrella brand and and sort of intention of the company is is through Meta, and Meta is a B two B enterprise sort of you know company, and and within it, it exists Facebook, which is a social app, and and Instagram is just there's a lot of conflict there, just from the um, sort of identity of of the business. Um, so yeah, I hadn't thought of the commercial that way, um, which just actually has me more questioning its um, ability to achieve the mission of what Meta probably sh- it should be hoping to achieve. I mean, I, I happen to think that the metaverse is a solid play to bet on. Um, it's early. It's early. Uh, do I think that my daughters and you know they're you know five and five weeks? Um, which, by the way, my wife's pissed at me. The five week, the five week old. It was a daddy night last night. She slept through the night for me. Oh, okay. She's like, how well come done. she keeps doing that for you? I just, <laughs> I don't know. I must have the magic touch when I yeah. wrap her up in the burrito, <laughs> like a burrito. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I imagine them like experiencing, um, like I, I get crazy nervous about like the bullying and all the bad stuff that can happen with it. But as teenagers, like you know, like teleporting to France and learning French or Spanish, and like the, all these you know, experiences that they can have to sort of like learn about the world and like the knowledge sort of for me, like the knowledge and the, the um, interactivity that the metaverse offers, the knowledge transfer, the interactivity um, that excites me. And then I know a couple like call them kids. I mean, they were you know, 22, 23 year olds that came to LA when I had been out for a few years that were from BU or Emerson college. And they, they're like, one of them's got like a metaverse design firm and like, there's like this like really interesting, there's something, there's a lot of interesting things happening in like the true like consumer metaverse. Um, and it's just a very, you know, a, a, the early adopters are playing with it and it's going to take a while for the laggards to get on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like like the the consumer metaverse, like the, the metaverse that we more probably associate what we thought meta is or would will be. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's going to happen. It's just going to be a yeah. while. Yeah. And that's the whole thing about technology is sometimes you're way too early. And that might happen with Meta, right? I mean, yeah. Google Glass was right. It was just way too early. Meta Meta is probably right also. But yeah. what type of time frame are we looking at? Because when you're looking, yeah. when you're losing $10 billion a year, then you're, you're in trouble. And for me, it's like the 2030s. Like, it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, that it, sounds it, right it, to me. Yeah, like it's not this decade. No, it's it's baby at the start of the next one. Okay, yeah, that's 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 interesting. Um, who do you, who would you say of the of the of big tech companies is most vulnerable right now, and why? I mean, Google seems like it's the one, right? Google or mm-hmm. Meta, Meta because it yeah. doesn't have an operating system, and Apple is yeah. beating the garbage out of it, and uh, yeah. and Google because search looks like it's about to go through a pretty big transformation. And it's kind of like what Microsoft dealt with. Absolutely. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. And yeah. we'll see what happens with Google. Yeah. 
Uh, cool. All right. So let's go deep. All right. So just last couple of questions. Um, if you could be remembered for one thing in the world, you know, what, what would that be? Yeah. I mean, like, I don't even think it's, it's professional, honestly. Like, um, I enjoy what I do professionally. I have a lot of fun. I really love hearing from the audience and, you know, putting out a story or a podcast that resonates, but, um, I don't think it's the main driving force in my life. Like I think like if I'm remembered as anything, like hopefully it'll just be like, um, good spouse when we get there, good father, when we get there, good son, when we, you know, while we're there. So yeah, just like, that's my main, my main goal in life is just coming to people and, and, you know, treating them as, as they deserve. And, um, and, you know, no one's perfect at it, but it's, it's definitely like, I feel, I feel like your existence on this world, like when you strip away, everything is just your relationships with people. And so that's sort of what I'm interested in. That's great. I love it. Be good to people. Uh, I remember when I graduated from Boston university, they gave uh, everyone in the college of communication, a book with a smiley face on it. Mm -hmm. It's called the power of nice. Yeah. And I remember being like, I got all this student loan debt and you handed me a book with a smiley face on it about Uh being nice. Like what's that going to get me? Mm -hmm. And like, I've read that book five or six times in my Mm -hmm. life. I'm like, it's, it's good to be grounded. Just be good to people. I mean, it just so happened. It's sort of like the secret. If you've ever been familiar with the secret where it's like, you put good out into the world and good will come back. So be a good person. It just so happens when you're a good person and you're a good person in business, like then good business will happen too. Right. Um, but be a good person for, you know, for this, you know, for the, for the sake of just being good and outside of any sort of like professional or business game. So I like how you couch that too. It's like not so much about being remembered, having a legacy mm-hmm. from a business perspective, it's from a human perspective. Yeah. And it's not always possible. I mean, one of the things that like, I think that I've learned is that a lot of times people are going to want more from you than you can give, or mm-hmm. you should give, and they're going to get upset. And, um, sort of nothing you can really do about that. You also have to like look out for yourself at some point, but yeah, but yeah, it's definitely been interesting to have like, you know, encounter some of the folks who just, we are living in like a pretty entitled society also. And, you know, just like to deal with the, yeah, people who are like entitled and believe that you owe them something right off the bat is, is pretty interesting to me. It's kind of one of the, it's one of the downsides of, doing all this work in public. It's just like yeah. you do form these parasocial relationships with a lot of people. And mm-hmm. some of those are, most of those are really great, but some of those are just, you like look up one day and you're like, what happened here? You know, yeah. and you're just, you're not, you're not fully dialed into the other person's experience. So biggest challenge of my life, the first, you know, professional life, I should say from 22 to 35. So we're talking mm-hmm. up till two, three years ago. Um, Fixed it with therapy. Yeah. So useful. I started, Mm -hmm. I I worked with the therapist the year prior to COVID and then kept doing it virtually. And it was all about boundary setting Mm -hmm. with humans that I had personally and professionally in my life that were expecting so much of me that I was giving so much to. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, at this, to the sacrifice of, of, of my ideal sort of like mental health, um, sort of happiness quotient, you know, for mm-hmm. what was important to me and my wife and my daughter. Uh, so it's, it's, it's my little proc- you know, every now and then I'll mention that to folks. Like it's, but maybe I don't know. It's maybe from being out in L- LA and open up to it. I don't know, but it's, it, 
therapy is a, is a lovely um, conduit through which you can you can set appropriate boundaries and not feel guilt um, uh, to not give people too much. Oh, totally. I mean, the, the only reason I'm aware of this type of stuff is through therapy also. So, yeah. Yeah, there you go. I love it. Um, appreciate you sharing that too. Uh, so final question, and, and it could just be be good to people, uh, but we, we always like this, the idea of ending with uh, sort of like just a challenge for listeners that we share. Um, you know, one of my favorite is, you know, Deirdre Sartorelli, he used to run the Angle Center for Entrepreneurship at Endicott College. Um, she's like, I just want people to be off their devices and be more present. Um, so it could be anything, but just like, it, it, or it could, you know, go challenge you to go read this because you know, my buddy Galen Moore is like, I want everyone to read the Bitcoin white paper so they can understand mm-hmm. it. Like, all right, yeah. Galen, that could be your challenge. Um, but did you have a fun challenge for listeners? I mean, I challenge you to, uh, um, listen to the big technology podcast. No, I'm kidding. There you, go. <laughs> um, you, you know, I, I don't know. It's tough to, how do you, um, set a challenge for other people? Um, you know, I okay. Here's my challenge. Uh, my challenge is to read read the articles on social media before you comment them on them or you share them. That's so I'll just comment on the headlines. No, yeah, exactly. It's pretty easy, shouldn't it be? <laughs> and be good to people. I would hope. Yeah, yeah. Alex, this has been a pleasure, man. Appreciate you taking all the time today. My pleasure, really. It was great talking with you, Zach, and and thanks for having me on. And likewise, looking forward to seeing the uh, continued journey that you're on at, at Big Tech Big Technology. Thank you, and likewise. All right. Cheers. Take care. Bye.